Christmas is observed around the world in many different forms. It may have a different name depending on where you are, but in most areas it is a time for celebration and spending time with family and friends. But before the Christ was put in Christmas, there were different rituals and holidays observed in the ancient world. Whether you celebrated Saturnalia or perhaps Yule, the roots of modern-day Christmas celebration have echoed throughout the years into the hallmarks of tradition today. But along with the trees, decorations, and presents also come some of the darker traditions of the holiday season, like the witches and tricksters who will do more than just replace your gifts with coal. Replace your soul with coal. Evil. <laughs> <laughs> oh, but speaking of Christmas music, every single time I hear all I want a hippo, all I want for Christmas is a hippopotamus or whatever. I just want to take a candy cane and start sapping. It is, it the is so bad. Not to be dramatic, but <laughs> you know what the fun part about Christmas music is, though. Like if you take any Christmas song, pretty much, and you sing it like. I saw Mama kissing Santa Claus. It makes it so much more scary. Well, yeah. <laughs> Just put some like ominous, like random footsteps in the background. And I'm pretty sure if you did that to any song, like, imagine Love Story by Taylor Swift. I'm pretty sure if you sang yeah, it like that. <laughs> then it'd be like about a stalker who can't. Or if, she's can't. looking through the window. Yeah. Is she actually just Santa? I, maybe. <laughs> she's got, seeing if you're naughty and nice. Hello, everyone. Happy holidays. Merry Christmas. Happy Hanukkah. Whatever you celebrate, wherever you are in the world or whoever you are celebrating with. It is our Christmas episode today. Uh, we are releasing this a day after the official date of Christmas, but I what good timing, honestly. Right. I mean, we were one day off, but we're recording on a kind of fun day like to coincide with the topics that we're talking about today. Yeah, so... Again, we just somehow stumble upon good timing, yeah, as to, always. To date ourselves a little bit, as, as of this recording, it is currently the 21st of December, which is the winter solstice. And as we'll talk about, that is a very important day culturally throughout history. So. Happy winter solstice to you. Yes, happy to all of you who celebrate. To all, all seven. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I, don't think, I don't think people have feasts and sacrifices like they used to, but... No one's drinking, I assume, mutton? No, <laughs> Out drinking of mutton. <laughs> Eating mutton and drinking I don't ale. think anyone has ever done that. Well, <laughs> well, I, nah, someone's probably done that, actually, so I can't say never. But Evan, how are you today? Are you feeling jolly and in the the spirit of the holidays? I'm feeling very in the spirit of the holidays. Extremely excited. You know, this is just a fun time to get back. I'm a I'm the fun uncle in the family. Heck so yeah, the funkle, as literally right at yeah, right right after we get done recording, I'm going to hang out with uh, my nephews and watch them play arcade games. I'll probably throw one in you no know, ball pit. Maybe forget about them. We'll see. I mean, that that <laughs> depends on how the parents are. I mean, <laughs> you did say that your sister forgot that the kids had school today. So yeah, we were, yeah, we were making making these plans. We're like, yeah, we'll go there around lunch. And then she's like, oh wait, he still has. He's like still in school. <laughs> That's kind of important. Yeah. I mean, yeah. What are they going to be doing this week? Honestly, but they're going to be doing a lot of rehearsing for the Christmas pageants. Oh, that is yeah. true. That is important. Growing up, Jacob and I at our. Uh, grade school we always had to put on this christmas is christmas pageant i would yeah, say yeah it was we went to a lutheran 
grade school. So mm-hmm. we did like the whole story of Jesus birth and all that fun stuff. How much of the, how much of the uh, verses do you think you still got in you? Antirenius was governor of I'll, Syria. I'll give it like a good 12%. I, <laughs> I think I could maybe do that much. Oh, you're not also just scarred and just half <laughs> that Tyrannius was governor of Syria there's at the time thing, of Jesus' birth ingrained in your there's mind. There's a thing called repressed memories, <laughs> you see. Which is how we met. <laughs> yes, exactly. But anyways, today we are all about Christmas, and as I mentioned in the intro read, we will be going back in time and kind of discovering a little bit about where tradition came from around Christmas time. Not necessarily Christmas as it is today. We will talk about that a little bit, but more so what the ancient peoples celebrated around this time, the different festivals like Saturnalia and Yule, which Yule is still interchangeable in northern parts of Europe and places like Scotland, and that's interchangeable with the word Christmas, and they still celebrate it as as Yule up there. So it's very interesting to see kind of where a lot of the modern day traditions like the trees and the mm-hmm. presents and the the Christmas lights, where all that comes from. It's just very interesting that this this holiday, I think above any other, just has so much history behind it. It really does. Meaning yeah. like it's had it went from like a carnival, a rowdy good time, to now it's just a focused holiday. You focus on family, you focus on well now commercialism and getting oh. like things. Including the amazing Christmas present that Jacob got me, which you can probably check our social medias on. Yeah, we'll post a picture of us with it because it's pretty cool. It is very cool. And I forgot Jacob's on the way here. So yep. it's I coming don't know down what the it pipe. Is yet. It's well it's not Christmas technically when we're recording, so you haven't missed the mark yet. Yeah, still have time. I'm I'm marking my calendar. Yeah. <laughs> you wake up Christmas morning and I'm there. <laughs> <laughs> I'm in time, don't worry. Yeah. No, it's like it's like eleven fifty nine on Christmas Eve and you just like bust through my door right. and you're like, I'm s i am made it. I'm gonna be so pissed if there's not milk and cookies or something out there. Or you like you ice me. That would be the way to go. Yeah. But speaking of drinking, we're, we're going to start with the holiday of Saturnalia. So we're going to begin our journey through the origins of Christmas by going to ancient Italy. Back in the days of the ancient Romans, Christmas time as we know it today was celebrated a bit differently because the holiday, holiday, as I mentioned, was known as Saturnalia, which the name was a nod to the Roman god Saturn. And Saturn, for those who don't know, is the god in charge of seed sowing. Super exciting. Very fun. And Saturn, I believe, was the Greek god that may have been Athena, because the Romans just kind of took the uh, Greek gods and were like, we'll take these and use them as ours. Who was Saturn in Greek mythology? Oh, the Greek god Cronus. So he w- was it like an equal position in greek yeah correct seed yeah. sowing well yep. cool name not the most fun job no but the purpose pur- <laughs> Zeus is throwing lightning he's just like planting seed like this is not odin's equal. like hanging from a cross with one eye and like getting all the wisdom <laughs> yeah. in the world and there there's just this guy who's planting fields <laughs> he was very just very handy but the purpose of the celebration of saturnalia was supposed to be a sort of uh preemptive thank you giving giving that thanks for the promise of a good spring harvest. So it wasn't necessarily that they were thanking pe- thanking the gods for a plentiful harvest the year 
that they were celebrating in, but they were looking forward into the next year saying, we are giving thanks, we are feasting, we are celebrating in the hopes that the gods will bless us with another bountiful year and not famine. Right. And this is just very kind of step and step, stride for stride with a lot of the celebrations back in the day, like in this culture and in many cultures were to appease the gods. Whether that celebration was, you know, a party like this one, or even sacrificing hearts of your enemies. Shout out the Aztecs. Or, I did read somewhere, I didn't verify this fact, but I did read that a bunch of Egyptian men would just jack off into the Nile River to thank them for a fertile harvest. So, I mean, they were... (laughs) Different different strokes for different folks, some might say. You did not have to say I did. You did, yeah. I mean, oh wow, that's... That just sounds like that sounds like a prank. That sounds like I, hazing. That sounds like hazing. Yeah, that sounds like <laughs> there's like just a one guy downriver that was just like guys. Pharaoh, good one. <laughs> Pharaoh's like, if you want to be part of my royal council, you have to <laughs> jail in the in the river. Who told him that he had to do that? <laughs> but Saturnalia originally began as a single day celebration that took place on December seventeenth, which was designated as the day of Saturn. But eventually, the date of the 17th was given over to Saturn's wife, who was also his sister, named Apalia, and she was the goddess of abundance and fruit of the earth. Okay, I guess that makes sense. He's planting seeds and she's the fruit. I guess so. Dynamic duo. Yeah, I mean, the sister relationship is a little odd, but I guess like that was kind of a normal thing in their culture, so I guess might as well make the gods do it too. Yeah. But since Saturn was a god who was associated more with the heavenly realms and Opalia was the goddess associated with the earthly realm, the holidays ended up becoming combined, according to Roman scholar and philosopher Macrobius. And Macrobius wrote a work called Saturnalia, which is where we get a lot of information that we know currently about the festivals and about how these people celebrated and what they did. But it wasn't just those two holidays that ended up combining because the Romans also celebrated what they referred to as Brumalia, which is a feasting day to celebrate the shortest day of the year, which is the day that we are recording this on. I'll say also today. So the official feast was called Bruma, and it would coincide with the winter solstice, which was either the 21st or 22nd of December, depending on the year. And thus, these three holidays eventually combined together and emerged as a seven-day party that started on December 17th and ended on the 23rd. See, now the Romans kind of had it down seven days off. Yeah. Well, before this, we were like, do you have the day after Christmas off of yeah. work? <laughs> like, question mark? This is why, like, as I was researching all of this stuff, I was like, I want to celebrate Saturnalia. Like, can we bring this back? That would be so much fun. The Gems of History podcast presents Saturnalia. Saturnalia. <laughs> it's just us getting hammered in the streets for like a week. It sounds like a lot of wine and a lot of toga oh, parties. Yeah. So. A lot of hard, like, spiked ciders. Yes. Oh, gosh, yeah. Absolutely. You can't have a Miller Lite or anything. It no, has to be authentic. <laughs> it's got to be like honey wine. <laughs> so throughout the following years, Augustus changed the festival back to a three-day holiday because he was not okay with having the courts closed for an entire week. And then Caligula eventually raised it back to five in the first century AD. And by the time Macrobius came around in the fifth century, Saturnalia was almost two weeks long. Wow. I mean, it's probably an easy way to bo- like bolster up your public approval yeah. as an emperor. A hundred percent. 
if people loved celebrating Saturnalia, I mean, this time of year, like your life revolves around war and farming pretty much like mm-hmm. sustaining a, an economy and around this time you can't farm and if you want to go to war you're going to be staying out in barracks that are freezing cold so it's right. not really a good time to do either one so yeah. what else are you <laughs> going to do except celebrate and have parties right stay inside have a drink True origins of the holiday of Saturnalia are lost to time, but one Roman writer named Columella wrote about it in his book about agriculture, noting simply that Saturnalia took place at the end of the agrarian year. So once the farming was done, you celebrated Saturnalia. It was pretty much put in place, as I mentioned, to kind of spice things up at the end of the year and to celebrate the upcoming spring. And according to Macrobius, a priest of Saturn who had received a divine message from the god Saturn himself said that the deity demanded, quote, all things that are serious are to be barred, end quote. Oh, so he, all right, guys, from God himself, he said, be a silly goose. <laughs> yeah, so, so in Christianity, they just be like, the Holy Spirit gave me a message. Go party. <laughs> that one. I'm still waiting. <laughs> yeah, Jesus from the cross said it. I swear. Let's get let's get let's lit. get lit. Yeah. <laughs> but despite this message, it was still a religious observance, which meant that a religious ceremony did have to take place first. It was held at the Temple of Saturn, and sacrifices were made to the holiday's namesake, along with cutting or loosening the woolen bonds that were wrapped around the feet of the statue in the temple which signified not only liberation for the god, but for the Roman people as well. And it was time for them to, quote-unquote, cut loose. The modern-day equivalent is the ball dropping in New York, in, in Times Square in New York. <laughs> yeah, on New Year's Eve. But yeah, I, I do love that they took all of these symbols very seriously. And I mm-hmm. think that's very interesting because, you know, well, you might not know because I'm going to talk about practical magic, but it's like sigils and symbols have like huge importance for celebrations totally. and like for making your magic more imbued with power. So, I mean, this is literally and figuratively cutting loose to celebrate this god who you're hoping will give you a good harvest next year. Right. So, it does have a lot of power in that aspect. And with everyone in the town putting that that positive energy towards it, it really could have made a difference depending on whether they believed in that stuff or not, which I'm assuming that they did back in the day. I would assume, yeah. I mean, their lives pretty much, like you mentioned, war, farming, or appeasing the gods. Yeah, exactly. So, or going to some temple or court and learning and doing philosophy. Right, right. So, I mean, yeah, it's a, it's a time to get rid of all of that stuff pent-up stubbornness that you had to keep in for the entire year, you know? But this holiday, which gave the usually strict and rigid Roman society, it gave them the the go-ahead to flip itself on its head. (laughs) All of the courts and businesses closed to allow everybody to take part in the festivities, and a free public banquet was held for everybody. Wow. Free man and slave all together. Yeah, this is one of the cooler parts about Saturnalia, how they treated the the slaves for a short time. Yeah. Um, granted, I believe we've said it before on the show, like slavery is a little bit different or the construct of it was a little bit different in Roman culture. Yeah. Um, where is they still very much do not have free will, but their servants, they still 
have their lives owned by someone else. Right. But they got a little party. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> they get two weeks that they're just like everybody else, which is kind of nice, I guess. Yeah. Speaking of his personal experience, Saturnalia, the 5th century Roman poet Satius said, quote, Who can sing of the spectacle, the unrestrained mirth, the banqueting, the unbought feast, the lavish streams of wine? Ah, now I faint, and drunken with thy liquor drag myself at last to sleep. End quote. All right, so Saturnalia, presented by the Gems of History podcast, next year, December 21st. Yeah. <laughs> That's locking a date. <laughs> so you got to get drunk with liquor and drag yourself to sleep. I think sounds, we've, done, we've done that before. That sounds like a Saturday in Wisconsin. For reference for everyone listening, Evan and I, along with Mark, the former co-host, have kind of started this tradition without trying to, of getting together at one of our houses, like... A day or two before New Year's Eve and just getting absolutely obliterated for no reason. For I mean, that's how the podcast was born. <laughs> that's much, kind of yeah. yeah, that's true. So, yeah, that's kind of our own Saturnalia celebration, I guess. That is true. Yeah, it's just like truly just the random hangouts. Yep. The best, but... So while the feast took place, rowdy civilians would parade through the streets shouting, Oi, Saturnalia! which is similar to how we would say Merry Christmas or Happy Holidays. That was just their moniker for saying that they were celebrating. (laughs) Except back in the day, if someone was like, I actually don't celebrate Saturnalia, I want a Happy Holidays, I'm sure be met with a much harsher harsher response. This is for like good harvests. You're being a real bummer right now. (laughs) If the crops don't grow, it's his fault. Which... In addition to the free feasting, many of the societal norms were disregarded or sometimes completely flipped. So public gambling was allowed, but usually it wasn't money that was exchanged, but rather they exchanged nuts to honor Saturn. All right. Sure. So just <laughs> the richest al- man was just the biggest man with the biggest bag of nuts. Get all your almonds and your pecans together. <laughs> Someone's just harvesting non-stop throughout the year like a squirrel all these different (laughs) so we can go hog wild games varied from bobbing for corks and ice water to playing a friendly game of knuckle bones in which children would take a bone typically the ankle bone from a sheep or goat and assign a numerical value to each side to be played like dice Oh, or they would play it like jacks, and I honestly ne- have never played jacks before. I don't know if you have, I like when you were all, younger. I don't think it's an actual real game. I think it's solely portrayed in like nineties <laughs> cartoons. Like, cartoons, yeah. So I had to look up how to play jacks, but like basically, you throw these little jacks on the table, and then you bounce a ball, and you have to bounce it, and only like you throw it up, and you have to try and pick up a certain number of jacks before the ball bounces twice. You have to catch the ball once you pick up the jacks. And that's, oh. how, that's how it works. Because if you let it bounce twice, then your turn's over. So they would do that with these, these bones, except they would have one designated as the quote-unquote ball, but they would just throw it in the air oh. like higher, and then they'd have to catch it before it hit the ground. Oh, that's kind of cool. So that was the games that they would play. But some other citizens would choose to participate in trivia games instead, posing the hardest questions that they could think of. And if nobody could answer... The crown of who is the smartest would be given to the statue of Saturn. Oh, that's kind of fun. So if nobody got it, then the crown remained there until next year, I suppose. Seems very much 
like, of course, it's different than modern day Christmas, but just the aspect that this is all happening in public, like in the town square, for yeah. example, um, or just like the temple in front. Whereas today, of course, we just celebrate it privately in our homes, typically. Just yeah. a very, very sharp I, contrast. But I mean, we like have holiday parades and stuff like that. Right. So, I mean, right. it's similar to stuff like that. One of the largest spectacles, though, was the chariot races that eventually got added to the itinerary on Saturnalia. By the 4th century AD, it was said that up to 36 chariot races may have taken place a day. 36 a day? Yeah, so that's nonstop setup, go reset, go again. Like, once, more wow. than once an hour, yeah, so... Looking at you, NASCAR, maybe pick it up a little. <laughs> <laughs> Formula One, where are you at? Yeah. Slaves, as we mentioned, were free for the time of Saturnalia, wearing a cap of freedom known as the pile- the pilium to signify that they were on equal footing with their masters for the time being. And the hat, in some representations, does look somewhat similar to modern-day like elf hats or Santa hats that we know today. It's oh. a little pointy hat, and it has a little rim around the top. Obviously, it's not colored, because it's like an old carving or something, mm-hmm. but... Yeah, it does kind of look like what we now know as Santa hats or Christmas hats, which is interesting. That's very interesting, yeah. In some instances, the masters would even go so far as to serve their slaves at the feast, in addition to the adults serving the children. So, everything, as I mentioned, was flipped upside down, did a 180 culturally. Hmm. Once again, according to the god Saturn himself, quote, Everywhere there is clapping and singing and playing games, and everyone, slave and free man, is held as good as his neighbor. End quote. Yeah, definitely a time of unity. Definitely. It's cool that like they made it as important as to say that the god himself said, like, this is how it is, and if anyone's right. got a problem, you could take it up with that guy. Take it up with God. Yeah. <laughs> Aristocrats usually wore conservative clothing during the year, you know, like the white robes or the plain colored clothing. But for Saturnalia, they would dress in bright clothing made of reds, purples, and gold and would call their outfits their synthesis because it was an outfit put together with whatever clothing they wanted. Talk about pulling off a fit. It's the the equivalent of the NFL fits today coming to the game. It's like the aristocrats wearing fun clothes. Yeah. One of the most fun traditions that happened during Saturnalia was that of the Lord of Misrule. Mm-hmm. Households would appoint a mock king who would reign over everyone in that residence and give whatever silly orders they pleased, perhaps requesting someone to shout embarrassing insults, or maybe dance naked, and let us not forget chasing the others around the house. Hopefully not while naked. (laughs) (laughs) Your family members. Yeah, hopefully there's like a comma in between. Dad's full dong hanging, chasing the kids around the house. (laughs) I mean, I guess that probably wouldn't be that unheard of for like the Roman culture. For the Roman culture, yeah. So it wouldn't be that much different, but it is funny that there's just people that would just be running around naked through the streets and stuff, and everyone's like, that guy's partying. Right. Like... Modern day, we consider that vile and streaking, and you're banned from the NFL stadium. Public indecency. (laughs) Gifts would also be exchanged, although it wasn't really a necessity, as we do it today, where everyone exchanges gifts on Christmas. Some gift examples included fattened pigs, incense, turtle doves, glass cups, and lamps. So a little different than what we 
give today. We don't. They didn't have Xboxes and <laughs> new iPods to give out. Mom, I want a Nintendo Switch. Well, here's a turtle dog. Here's a fattened pig. Here's a fattened. Go take care of it. <laughs> right. Go slaughter it in the back. Yeah. Some of the more popular gifts included white candles, which were known as Seire, which signified the longer days and more light to come after the solstice. Or they were given clay faces known as sigillari, which were used as little ornaments. And that started the little ornaments. Nice. These ornaments would be hung in greenery as decoration, similar to modern-day Christmas trees, with people bringing in berries and holly to honor the god of Saturn. At the same time, figs, nuts, and other small goodies would be showered on people in the streets to get the point across even more. So, instead of throwing rice at a wedding, they were throwing nuts at people in the street. Were nuts just abound? Well, I mean, more than one way. Nuts were abounding in Rome, <laughs> <I guess laughs> apparently. Apparently, they just had an abundance of, of nuts going around. Right. According to the Roman satirist Lucian, drinking parties were an important part of Saturnalia as well. A time, quote, to drink the most delightful drinks and to be acclaimed a better singer in your cups than the next man, end quote. So the voice actually was born during this, an American Idol. A drunk wow. voice. The drunk voice. So karaoke. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. I do love the description, in your cups. As, right. as saying that you're hammered, and I think I'm going to start using that as like my <laughs> yes, description. Your description. Yeah, sorry, I'm not feeling the best today. I was in my cups last I night. I was in the cup. <laughs> Wine would be mixed with water and sometimes honey or spice in a large bowl and then ladled into cups, which everyone could enjoy, similar to a punch bowl at a dance or something like that. Okay, wine and, hu- wine and honey I could get behind. Wine have and ever, water. Have you ever had honey wine? Like, uh... Now I'm going to forget the name of it. There's like a certain name for honey wine and I'm blanking on what it's... Oh, mead. Mead, yeah. yeah. Have you ever had mead? I think you've actually... I think you may have gotten mead as a gift one time and then I tried it. Well, uh, I think our my buddy Nate brought it to, yeah! to uh, get together that we That's had. right. Yeah. Shout out Nate. Yeah, I do dude, remember that. Yeah, it's very good. Mead is so good. I would totally be down to get hammered on mead around Christmas time, dude. That's so, our, yeah, again, our Saturnalia. Yeah, so, yeah. <laughs> All right, Gems of History Saturnalia. You got to get drunk and drag yourself to bed, and it has to be on honey wine. We're really, we're really <laughs> digging ourselves in a hole here. Hey, when, when, we have to, <laughs> when next year and the listeners are like, where's the invite? Where's, where's Saturnalia? Yeah. yeah. However, not everyone was excited as about was as excited about the festivities as the common man. For example, Seneca was known to complain that the festival mob would get out of control with their pleasantries and celebration. And Pliny the Younger similarly avoided any merrymaking as he would hole up in his studies instead of partaking. Sounds like some dork things it in does. my opinion. Some like philosopher type shit. Oh. People are having too much fun. I'll go grab my calculator. Oh, look at these people celebrating and laughing. I hate it. They should be bettering their mind. All right, guy. (laughs) In addition to these philosophers being bums, once the Christian church elders decided on December 25th as the official date of Jesus' birth, they designated it as a Christian holy day. They didn't designate it as a holiday originally. They just designated it as a holy day. So they distinguished themselves from the pagan celebration of Saturnalia, choosing to keep it a somber day instead of a time for partying. 
But on the other end of the spectrum, some were excited to throw the festivities for other reasons. Because while everyone just was distracted, there were plots to overthrow the government. But most of the time, they were stopped before they got anywhere. Even though there was a few instances of people that got murdered on Saturnalia because there was plots against them. So, there was varying reasons to be excited about the holidays, I guess. Yeah, I mean, if you're playing a coup for years, Saturnalia may be a great time to celebrate it <laughs> yeah, with your nuts. <laughs> the uh, January 6th people missed it by a couple weeks. They were just a little too late. They were, ah, uh, they missed it just barely. But nonetheless, Saturnalia continued until as late as the 8th century due to its popularity, despite Christmas coming in and kind of dampening the mood. So, it was, this, is, this is a really fun holiday, and <laughs> I really hope that we can bring back some essence of this in current day. Right. I mean, it is kind of, it is very interesting that as soon as Christianity became, well, not as soon as, but when Christianity became the main religion of Rome, it just gradually stops being celebrated. Because, I mean, you're just not celebrating that God anymore. And that was a justification between the, yeah. with a belligerent drunkenness, as we just talked about with Christianity that's frowned upon. Yeah. And, it is, as I did mention that this is like a religious celebration, Saturnalia is like religious based. Right. But it's, I think it's more of a cultural celebration mm-hmm. than like a religious tide celebration. It's just that they needed some something to kind of have as a figurehead of it, I think. So Where, St. Patty's Day. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. Whereas uh, Christmas as a Christian holiday was all about the religion. And that's right. that, that was the main focus. So I think that was one of the reasons why it was a, a lot different temperament between the two. So, moving on from Rome, we explore the traditions of the Old Norse. Tradition dictates that a festival of feasting and merrymaking, originally known as Yule, now Yule, would be celebrated every year, beginning on the night of the winter solstice. So, I guess we got to celebrate Yule tonight. We got a lot of things to do. (laughs) Uh, They also called the winter solstice midwinter in this tradition. And the date was important, since as it was the longest night of the year, it meant that there were quite literally longer and brighter days to come. So that's a very common theme between celebrations, no matter where you are in this time uh, time period, because you just you have nothing to do and it gets dark really early. So. I was truly thinking about that the other day when it was dark by three thirty, three forty five. Like, what did you do on these days? Exactly. What did people do? Like. Do you just go to bed? I mean, <laughs> just, it's by the time we finish recording this, it's 3.30 right now. It, but in 15 yeah. minutes, it'll be dark outside. It'll be dark outside, <laughs> yeah. yeah. So I, I can definitely understand why you would need a little pick-me-up during this time of the year. Right. They were feeling seasonal dis- depression. It's not like it just started and, and they didn't when have, we have therapists, it's yeah, always going to say. <laughs> Some arguments were even made that the Old Norse beliefs stated that midwinter was the day when the veil between the living and the dead was thin. And due to this, Odin featured prominently in celebrations on that date since he had a role as god of the dead, meaning midwinter served as a sort of day of the dead celebration in some aspects. Oh, Dia de los Muertos. Exactly. Cultural parallels. With Yule, or the origins, as with Saturnalia, are a bit murky, to say the least, and scholars can agree on little more than the basics of the Yule tradition origins, so much of the finer points of the holiday are still up for debate. But we, what we do know is that there was indeed a festival full of eating, drinking, and activities. To begin, men would bring large logs home, 
which now are known as the Yule Log, Mm -hmm. if you will, and would set them on fire while the women decorated the home with evergreens and candles in attempts to produce as much light as possible. After this, people would come together to eat, drink, and make sacrifices until the log burned out, which, depending on the log, the festival may be somewhere around three days, or in some cases, up to 12 days long. So, these are big old logs. These are the biggest logs of all time. (laughs) Yeah. But the goal remained the same no matter what the length of the holiday celebration was. It was to bring light. I'm just so, like, jaw, or not jawstruck, starstruck by this log. Honestly, like... Is this twelve the, days? <laughs> is this the Highland Games logs that the guys the guys pick up and throw? Like, is that what they're burning? It must have been because even that these are monsters. It's going to last twelve days. No, <laughs> as is to be expected, twelve days of drinking can lead to some very drunk people who would go gallivanting around town and singing songs. So they were being good for the most part. <laughs> I assume. wonder what a Yule song would be like with Norse. Like, I'm just imagining a lot of like throat like yeah exactly <laughs> sorry for everyone's ears that just heard that i'm not even going to try and pronounce norse words because they're impossible other than jotunheim jotunheim yep Mifelheim. some of these people would even participate in what is known as wassailing i think is how it's pronounced it's, sure. it's spelled was like was sailing put together into one word, but I'm pretty sure it's wassailing is how you pronounce it. Is there a squiggly red line underneath that word for you? No. <laughs> Google surpri- suggests wassailing. Surprisingly not. <laughs> According to the dictionary, to wassail means to, quote, drink plentiful amounts of alcohol and enjoy oneself with others in a noisy, lively way. Or possibly to, quote, go from house to house at Christmas singing carols. End quote. Of all the people, the Norse invented Christmas caroling. Pretty much, yeah. That is kind of fun. In the old celebrations, wine and cider would be poured on the ground while the group sang in an effort to drive out evil spirits and encourage crop growth. That is the best that how so much of this was like devoted to warding off evil spirits and like creatures in the night, and which we'll talk about in a little bit. But also involved just getting so hammered. Yeah, and then like pouring one out, for the, dead, one out for the dead crops. Pouring one out for my Norse homies, yeah. As mentioned, some believe Yule was a sort of Day of the Dead celebration, but one woman named Bettina Sebjörg Sommer from the University of Copenhagen believes that elements of folklore related to the celebrations of the dead may con- instead consist of leaving a table full of of food out for dead ancestors, trolls, angels, or any other supernatural visitors, not necessarily just to celebrate Odin. All right, so all those people walk into a bar, and that's the first one of those jokes. (laughs) Yeah, a dead ancestor, a troll, an angel, and other supernatural visitors walk into a bar. Aliens just come, like, from the sky and just have some wine. Never know. She argues that Yule was a type of New Year's celebration in which the coming year wasn't predicted and celebrated, but rather that the people celebrating were manifesting the new year into reality. Everything that happened during Yule influenced and created the year that was to come. Wow, so a lot of pressure on a holiday. Yes. A lot of pressure on that log. You better make sure that you're celebrating as hard as humanly possible. Yeah, apparently. In reality, the festival may have needed no other explanation than to be a reprieve from normal life. 
Back in the early AD and perhaps even before, it was a scary and cold time of the year once the winter solstice rolled around in Europe. The days were short, the harvest was over, and all you could do was hold on until the next spring by storing meat and trying to drive away the darkness. Right. Winter in this time was just the worst. Especially in Scandinavia. Especially in Scandinavia, yeah. Or imagine being in like Iceland or Greenland during winter. It's very brutal up there when it gets cold. Yeah. But whatever the true reasoning, drinking and eating were the centerpiece of the activities to celebrate or manifest abundance for the coming harvest year. Even visitors had no choice but to participate as it was seen as a sacred duty. I mean, like, I don't think anyone... like Saturnalia was. It just, yeah, why are people protesting? This? Right. <laughs> no, thank you. I'm done. I don't want a f- good food and a lot of drink. Right. By around the year 900, old Yule traditions began to intermingle and combine with Christmas, slowly blending the two holidays together. And as I mentioned, Yule is still used as a word for Christmas in Scottish and Northern dialects. Alfred the Great made the decision to grant free men a 12-day Yule vacation to celebrate the Christian holiday of Christmas, or the Old Yule. And a man known as King Haakon the Good, a Christian Norwegian king, demanded that whatever holiday people decided to celebrate had to include the drinking of ale while it lasted and to sacrifice horses and boars. Oh, why the horses? <laughs> That's, that that seems... was apparently the most popular sacrifice for this holiday celebration. Well, I guess the Norse may have not have used horses too much with their with the pillaging or with like folks yeah, on boats and it, seafaring. They were but, not like the Mongols, like using them for everything. Right. But I do love that the king, this is the first king that's like, you know what? Celebrate where you want and happy holidays and such, but you gotta slaughter a horse. And you have, have to, to drink, drink the ale. ale. <laughs> Eventually, the Yuletide celebrations carried into Christmas and became ubiquitous with the Holy Day. Carols, trees, and mistletoe originated from these pagan traditions, and perhaps the reason we celebrated the season with lights is a nod back to the original Yule celebrations of candles and Yule logs. But one thing remains to be answered. Who is that jolly old man in the red suit, and how did he become the central figure of modern-day Christmas folklore? Ho, ho, ho. Well, the legend of Santa Claus seems to originally come from a man born nearly two millennia ago near modern-day Turkey. In 280 AD, the man who eventually came to be a saint was born, and his name was Nicholas. Apparently, he was born to a very wealthy family, so when his parents died, when he was young, he was left quite rich. But despite having all of this wealth... He was said to be a, an unreasonably kind man who had a reputation for helping the poor and giving gifts. It is, he went so far as to give up all of his inherited wealth and traveled the countryside to help the sick and the poor. So, this guy is a, a shining example of how to be a good person, apparently. Yeah, let's celebrate this guy a little bit more as opposed to he'll be giving you gifts if you're a good boy. Right. I mean, he does have his own day other like aside from Christmas. So, I mean, I guess Sure, sure. Technically, guess. he yeah. does get celebrated, but yeah. just I think it's more of a European celebration that they they give this guy the nod rather than an American one. Right. We have many legends about the man, but it is questionable as to how many of them are true and how many of them are just embellished stories to paint a good light on this this Saint Nicholas. 
One of the most famous of these tales gives insight as to how the tradition of hanging stockings for presents came about. According to legend, there was a poor man with three daughters. This man was so poor that he did not have enough money for a dowry which was preventing his daughters from getting married. Some tellings say that the father was so desperate that he was ready to sell his daughters off into either slavery or prostitution. Oh, wow. So, so. <laughs> I guess desperate times call for very drastic measures. I'm, I'm, oh, wow. Desperate times come for selling your daughters. Well, you gotta, gotta do what you gotta do, I guess. But one night, Nicholas apparently dropped a bag of gold down the chimney into the house and just happened to fall into a stocking that was hung by the fire to dry. Nicholas did the same thing for the second daughter, who was getting ready to be married, and eventually the father wanted to see who was giving the money. So he head out by the fire to see if he could catch this unnamed generous man. When he caught the gold dropper, Nicholas begged the man not to tell anyone because he didn't want the attention. But the news spread and people quickly began to associate secret gifts with Nicholas. That is cool. That makes my heart warm. Quickly, the reputation spread and Nicholas became known as the protector of children. But that wasn't all. Another legend tells of Nicholas helping a group of sailors off the coast of Turkey. Story goes that they were caught in a bad storm, scared that their ship was going to sink. In their distress, they prayed to Nicholas, and suddenly, he appeared on the deck before them. And once there, he ordered the sea to be calm, and the storms died off. All right, this guy has a lot of different, uh, a lot of different hats that he wears. A little influential in more than one way. Right, right. Eventually, Nicholas passed away on December 6th, but the year is up for debate, but whatever the exact year was, it was sometime in the mid-4th century. Nicholas had been known as a saint, the most popular one in Europe by the time of the Renaissance, and Nicholas was officially canonized as the patron saint of children and sailors in 1446 by Pope Eugene IV, and was credited with 300 miracles, including three resurrections. Oh, oh, wow. All right. That's a regular Jesus Christ. So he, yeah, apparently. I wonder what they all classify as a resurrection, like, compared to, like, modern-day mess. Like, maybe he was just there giving out some berries, or maybe he just, someone prayed to him, and ba-boom, he's back on his feet. Yeah, it could have just been, like, oh, I'm really sick, not feeling good, think it's my time, and then he comes in and, like, What's the the, haps? Pats him on the back (laughs) real hard, and he coughs up a big ball of phlegm, and he's like, oh, I think I'm good now. It was actually just a (laughs) hairball. Once the 16th century rolled around in Europe and the Reformation was in full swing, veneration of the saints in general became unpopular. However, St. Nicholas stuck around, albeit with a name change. Different iterations included St. Christmas, Father Christmas, or Old Man Christmas, and he was viewed as the man who would deliver presents to children on Christmas. In the USA, the Germanic name Christkind was adopted and changed to Kris Kringle. Later, when the Dutch arrived, St. Nicholas or Kris Kringle became Sinterklaas, or as we know him now, Santa Claus. Interesting. St. Nicholas Day is now usually celebrated on December 6th in honor of the kindly Turkish gentleman with gifts being exchanged in stockings. The modern image of Santa Claus, the stout but jolly old man, seems to have originated from a poem known as An Account of a Visit from St. Nicholas, 
and I will read that for you right now because it's not too long. So you're telling me it wasn't Tim Allen? <laughs> no, no, it was not. He did not yeah. fall off a roof and then becomes, or the real Santa didn't fall off a roof and then give it up. Are you sure? <laughs> I, I didn't see it in any of my research, but there could be some lost evidence somewhere in the history books that no one's discovered yet. So In that movie, why do they just not discuss what happened to the last Santa? He just vanished. He just dies. <laughs> he just dies. <laughs> He's gone. He died and spawned a three movie franchise. So the following is a reading of an account of a visit from St. Nicholas by Major Henry Livingston Jr. I think you will find it very familiar. Twas the night before Christmas when all through the house, not a creature was stirring, not even a mouse. The stockings were hung by the chimney with care in the hopes that St. Nicholas soon would be there. The children were nestled all snug in their beds while visions of sugar plums danced in their heads. And Mama in her kerchief and I in my cap had just settled our brains for a long winter's nap. When out on the lawn there arose such a clatter, I sprang from the bed to see what was the matter. Away to the window I flew like a flash, tore open the shutters and threw up the sash. The moon on the breast of the fallen new snow gave the luster of midday to objects below. When what to my wondering eyes should appear but a miniature sleigh and eight tiny reindeer. With a little old driver so lively and quick, I knew in a moment it must be St. Nick. More rapid than eagles, his cursors, they came, and he whistled and shouted and called them by name. Now Dasher, now Dancer, now Prancer and Vixen, O Comet on Cupid, on Donner and Blixen. To top off the porch, to top off the wall, now dash away, dash away, dash away all. As dry leaves before the wild hurricane fly, wow, this is longer than I thought, when they meet with an obstacle mount to the sky. Okay, I'm only halfway done. Never mind, I'm not reading this whole thing. That's fair. But, I think they get the gist. Yeah, I think you get the idea of what this thing is. Yep. So that's where we originally get like the idea of Santa Claus. But he was a little guy. Yeah, apparently. A little miniature Santa with miniature reindeer. Right. I mean, how else would he fit in a chimney? You know? Right. I mean, yeah. It's going to be hard. I mean, <laughs> it's not like the suction cup thing from the Santa the Claus movie. Oh, the, yeah, that's right. <laughs> so it also gave us the name of his reindeer. And Rudolph, the red-nosed reindeer, was added to the canon in 1939. The canon? No, he wasn't shot out <laughs> the of the canon. canon. No, yeah, no. It was added to the canon of Santa Claus. The official manga. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> However, before 1931, Santa Claus still wasn't wearing red and was sometimes a spooky-looking elf, and eventually it transitioned to the red coat and into the man that we see today. But Santa's original appearance isn't the only spooky thing that is associated with the holiday. There are plenty of Christmas spirits who have quite the opposite of a jolly demeanor. Yes, like we talked about quite a bit, these celebrations were done... Primarily to ward off evil spirits yes. and just to fill the entire community with good vibes instead of the impending winter doom. Yeah, <laughs> but I guess they just couldn't avoid it. And for our first of our Christmas creatures and perhaps the most famous, we jump back over to Austria. On St. Nicholas Day, good children get gifts, of course, from St. Nicholas. Or Gems of History posters, again, for good children. You were a good child. But oh. <laughs> bad children will have to face the menacing Krampus. Krampus legends depict him as a half-man, half-goat, 
who comes around to chase naughty children and in some iterations even drags them to hell. Wow. <laughs> talk, talk about a, a very hard cut away from being generous and giving gifts. Yeah, Santa's like, you know, you're kind of a dick this year, kid. So here's a lump of coal. Yeah. Krampus says you're going to the bowels of hell. If you don't reach the bar of being good, <laughs> you in are... In my subjective opinion. <laughs> <laughs> Krampus seems to have followed in the footsteps of St. Nicholas for as long as the story has been around, and he even tags along with St. Nick and follows up gift-giving with punishments. The lucky kids will be beaten with birch branches, while those not as fortunate may be stuffed into Krampus's sack and hauled off to be tortured or eaten in his lair. Oh my god. <laughs> so, you think you'd probably... No, normally you don't want to get hit by birch branches, but in this instance, and, it's the better of the options. That or tortured in a goat man's lair. Yeah. After all, the name Krampus does originate from the German word Krampen, which means claw. So it's, an, it's a menacing title to have. I just got the biggest shiveries, I think, of a, a lot of times since we recorded these episodes. Tradition states that he may even be the son of the Norse god of the underworld, Hell. The image of Krampus has, of course, been through its trials by the Catholic Church due to the figure's resemblance to the devil. But today it has a major resurgence, and images of Krampus usually adorn him with horns, dark hair, fangs, and a long tongue, sometimes carrying a chain and bells in addition to his birch sticks. Did not need to know that he had a long tongue. <laughs> that, that, makes... that literally in the articles was like, that is one of the only things that is really consistent about him is that he has a really long tongue. Uh. Oh, 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 Gene no. Simmons is Krampus. Gee, that's, that's what it, I was trying to think of the name of the guy. Yeah. Oh, man. But I thought it was interesting that he may be the son of the Norse god Hell. Because hell, as I, I did a bunch of research into Norse mythology for a little while when I was playing D and D, because I wanted to incorporate it into a campaign I was doing. And hell really isn't like evil. Hell is just the she watches over the people that don't get selected for Asgard. Mm -hmm. So she's just kind of a neutral party that is an overseer. She doesn't do anything bad. So it's interesting that they say that Krampus is her son, and he's just the most evil bastard out there. Right? Hell is like. In this case, it's like the DMV. Like, it's not great, like, but you're just kind of like chilling. You're waiting a long time. There's some sassy lady up front who's hell. She's kind of like watching the over. Underworld is the DMV. The DMV. <laughs> Today, Krampus has his own day of celebration in certain parts of the world that takes place the day before St. Nicholas Day. This festival, which is known as Krampusnacht, features many people dressed in their own Krampus costumes who run through the streets chasing people down with birch sticks. Even tourists who have been around during the festival state that running into businesses won't save you from the wrath of these Krampuses, or Krampi, or Krampis. Krampis. I don't know what the plural of Krampus is. That is... <laughs> You can't run into a business to protect yourself from getting hit with bursts. No, it literally said like one woman ran into a coffee shop. And she still got sweat. She ran into a Starbucks yelling, sanctuary, sanctuary. <laughs> Save me. <laughs> and from all accounts, these swats from the birch sticks aren't necessarily gentle, but they are confined to only the legs. So you're going to get hit hard, 
but it's not going to be like in the face. But it'll be on your caboose. <laughs> Krampusnacht is a very festive occasion, and people celebrate with e- creating elaborate and expensive costumes and even host parades. And it has made its way into America, as I believe California and Florida both have their own little Krampusnacht celebrations, which I would love to do. Right. It's been made. That would be a lot of fun. And like it's been made into movies. Oh, yeah. It definitely is on the up and up. I'm pretty sure there's probably plenty of creepypastas about Krampus oh, I'm as sure. well. But I, I was talking to my coworker about it, and he made a funny point that California and Florida are the mo- like least Christmassy places in the country, yeah. and that's where they decided to have the celebration of Krampusnacht. Celebrate the son of hell. Yeah. <laughs> but sticking in the Germanic areas of Europe, we come to our next malevolent holiday spirit. Known as Frau Perchta, also known as the Belly Splitter, or the Christmas Witch. A woodcut from the mid-1700s depicts this witch as a crone with a dripping, warty nose who carries a basket on her back full of children, all of which are girls. Yes, this is kind of like that classic imagery that you think of when you think of witches or like how they've been depicted. Yeah, exactly. Like that weird nose, children, girls specifically, all that. She, in this woodcut, she stands in the doorway of a home holding a long staff as well as a distaff, which is a stick that holds fibers meant to be spun into wool on a spinning wheel. And this signifies the purpose for her visit. According to Linda Radich, an author of a book called The Old Magic of Christmas, Frau Perchta was originally known as Birchta or Bertha, with her nickname being the Spinning Room Lady. She bears resemblance to the goddess Frigga from Scandinavian folklore and shares the obsession of spinning and domestic neatness. Perchta is said to come into your home between the dates of December 25th and January 6th, and if you haven't finished weaving all of your thread by then, she is liable to trample or even set fire to the unwoven fibers. But don't let her find your house full of unwoven fibers and a mess especially if you haven't left out the traditional bowl of porridge for this temperamental witch. Because if that happens, she will slip into your bedroom with the long knife that she keeps under her skirt, disembowel you, and replace all of your innards with trash, rocks, or straw. Oh my god. If you have a messy house, you get your innards replaced with trash and rocks. The classic witch iconography goes from 0 to 100 with Frau Perchta. Yeah, that started with, oh, you have some, like, thread around. I'll probably just, like, stomp on it. And then if there's just too much thread. And if there's, like, a sock out of place, you're getting disemboweled, lady. Yeah. I do love that. the rules. It just targets the women, too. Oh, this... (laughs) The men are like, well, it wasn't my fault. Sorry, you didn't do enough work. I don't know. This was just, like, one guy's, like, his explanation of like, sir, you kind of looks like you murder your wife here, and there's a bunch of rocks and stuff. Uh, where Gus? It was Frau Perchta. It was a German witch. I yeah, don't it was that. No in between. I can't help you here, officer. Yeah. <laughs> there are also tales of Frau Perchta participating in the legend of the Wild Hunt, which, if you don't know what the Wild Hunt is, it is a motif of folklore in which a mythological creature is escorted by a group of ghostly hunters. And in this case, Frau Perchta's hunters are known as the Perchten, 
closely resembling uh, what we know as Krampus. So Krampus iconography is very popular in more than just his own story. But now Evan will be regaling us with a different type of creature of the night. Well, this is another Christmas baddie, not not with the, <laughs> yeah, not, I guess not baddie, yeah, but he's, not he's like an evil. independent woman. Yeah, not an independent woman who has, takes no sass, um, but it's very popular. Uh, if you're an Office fan, you absolutely know who this mischievous spirit is, and that is the spirit of Belschnickel. Belschnickel. So Belschnickel is one of those classic spirits that's targeted kids. And if you were on the naughty list, you would get some coal from Santa. But in German folklore, which was eventually brought over to Pennsylvania, Dutch by immigrants, takes a much different approach to his naughty list. So the Belschnickel originated in the Palatinate, Palatinate region of Europe and is thought to be based on or a companion of St. Nicholas, otherwise known as a servant of St. Nicholas. It's funny how many things got, like how many bad things they're just like, throw it at St. Nicholas. Give they it blame him for a lot. <laughs> yeah, I think this might have, wonder if this was the Christians trying to like damper stuff or if that this was just like Germans were just like, we need to make something evil here. Let us Germans one thing. <laughs> the Germans love making things evil sometimes. So. They love self-deprecation. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, Belschnickel is often adorned in gross animal fur, torn and dirty clothes, and will sometimes wear deer antlers atop his head. Hence the German word bells, which translates into fur and nickel, which is a reference to St. Nicholas. The Belschnickel is also referred to as Chris Kinkel, Belzschnickel, Pelschnickel, and sometimes the Christmas woman, which is okay. just such a great scene. Jump. Chris Chris Kinkle. Yeah. <laughs> what, what is that? Yeah. Unlike Santa, Belschnickel travels alone and arrives at homes one or two weeks before Christmas. Like Santa, he determines if the children he visits are deserving of Christmas treats or discipline for their behavior. He carries a full-on switch in his hand for the naughty. Nintendo variety or like? No, like the one which hurts. Oh, <laughs> it, a Nintendo Switch. It's actually hurt. a Nintendo Switch, but doesn't have Super Smash Brothers downloaded Ooh. on it. Don't even want it. Uh, just throw it at me. However, for the good children, he has pockets full of cakes, candies, and nuts. I just love getting cakes, candies, and nuts out of an old man's pocket. Don't you just love a good... Pocket cake? Pocket cake is my favorite type of cake. Why do I feel even more gross now? <laughs> and he's wearing, it's coming out of the pocket of a dirty animal. Of a crusty skin. man. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Upon his arrival, children are called upon to answer questions for him or sing a song. In exchange, he throws cakes, candies, and nuts onto the floor. But if the children dive greedily for the treats or can't recall the good behavior that they've done throughout the year, Belschnickel will threaten to swat their hands or their back with his switch. Well-mannered boys and girls get rewarded with cakes. So basically, can you not take the candy that's right in front of you? If you can have, like, some patience, the children are rewarded. But if not, they get smacked with a switch. 
Uh, that's an, that's some like, good good I, German folklore. I'm just gonna say for the record that there will not be pocket cakes available at our Saturday. <laughs> I'll just be carrying cupcakes in a big. <laughs> you're just like digging through like a destroyed cake yeah. out of your pocket. You're like, you want some? Thanks for showing up. Here's a pocket cake. <laughs> Here you go. Um, each year in early December, the Pennsylvania German Cultural Heritage Center in Pennsylvania, of course, actually hosts a festival celebrating Belschnickel uh, on the farm in modern-day Kutztown. The annual event celebrates Pennsylvania Dutch Christmas traditions, and Belschnickel always makes an appearance. And, of course, like I mentioned, celebrating the office. There are so many things in this that I just want to go do. <laughs> <laughs> There's just so much. We always talk about traveling for the show, but it may just need to be a holiday tour. That would be so much fun. All right. Well, jumping away from Germany again and going across the ocean a bit to Iceland brings us to our next holiday horror. Visually, she is a tough ogress who lives in a cave in the hinterlands of Iceland and mothers a group of mischievous and strange creatures. Her name is Gryla, or the Christmas Witch, so she kind of stole the name from Frau Perchta. Anyone can catch the nomenclature or the name of Christmas Witch, apparently. I, apparently, <laughs> the Christmas woman. Yeah. yeah. Tales of Gryla's Gryla, Gryla, I'm going to go with Gryla. Tales of her escapades began as oral retellings, with the first written account appearing in poems and sagas around the 13th century. One story goes, quote, Here comes Gryla, down the field in th- with 15 tales on her. Seems excessive, the 15. <laughs> Well, another tells that she has not 15, but 40 tails, and a bag on her back, a knife in her hand, and a lust for blood. Oh my god. (laughs) Her name loosely translates to Growler, which is fitting for her personality. So not a woman you want to see. No, 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 no. She has, she's had three husbands in the legends, so. Girl just can't keep a man. Nope. Must be the tails. Well, in addition to having eaten one of them, oh. because she got bored with him, oh. <laughs> she is also said to grab naughty children and toss them into her bag. Afterwards, she was said to either carve out the greedy children's stomachs for cra- craving meat during Lent, or just kind of taking them away. Oh, uh, it's <laughs> always the... These, all these traditions definitely love to focus on the stomach. Apparently. Like that greedy, greedy children's child like stomach. Like eating things you shouldn't be eating during a certain time. Right. In the story of her having 15 tails, it is said that each of those tails holds 100 bags, and each of those 100 bags holds 20 children in it. Jeez. So... It's like thousands of children. See if I can do some quick math here. That's 1,500 bags... And 20 children in each, so that's like 30,000 kids. 30,000 kids. <laughs> there weren't 30,000 kids in Europe at the time. <laughs> Sorry, families. Descriptions of her physical appearance vary wildly, from having eyes in the back of her head to having ears that hang so low that they hit her nose. Ew. But one thing is for sure, and that is that she is ugly as heck. And if it wasn't bad enough that she was ugly... She has a full-ass family of troublemakers. From the three husbands she is said to have had, she popped out 13 kids. 13 kids. Yes, yes, yes. And none of them ended up in any of the the bags on the tails. Apparently not. They were all saints. 
So these 13 little buggers are known collectively as the Yule Lads. Not that intimidating of a gang name. No, and they're really not that intimidating as characters either, to be honest. But they all have different calling cards, and all of them are little tricksters. And they go as follows. The Yule Lads consist of Sheep Coat Clawed, Gully Goth, Stubby, Spoon Licker, Pot Licker or Pot Scraper, Bowl Licker, Door Slammer, Skier, which is apparently Icelandic yogurt, Gobbler, Sausage Swiper, Window Peeper, Door Sniffer, Meat Hook, and Candle Beggar. Meat Hook? <laughs> meat Hook? Yeah. <laughs> candle Beggar, what? <laughs> most of them have like what they do in their names, but... like Very descriptive. Yeah, a couple of them, it's just like, I have no idea what this is supposed to mean. <laughs> but Sheep Code Claude apparently like does weird stuff with like suckling the farm animals. Oh. And Gully Gawk steals the like the froth off of milk bowls or something like that. <laughs> and then the other guys are just like, I like bowls and spoons. One's just short, stubby. <laughs> apparently. <laughs> On the 13 nights leading up to Christmas, these Yule lads take turn visiting kids in town. The kids will leave one of their shoes on the windowsill, and the Yule lad that comes that night will leave either candy for good children or rotting potatoes for the naughty ones. So imagine waking up and finding your shoes full of rotting potatoes. That's such a process for the parents to do. Yeah, right. Potatoes last forever. (laughs) Yeah, some things just say like rotting vegetables, but potatoes were the one that I heard named specifically. Right. The Yule Lads don't sound nearly as bad as their mother, but apparently that's because they used to be much worse. In 1746, parents in Iceland were officially banned from terrorizing their kids with Yule Lad stories. Because they were so so traumatized, they were apparently so terrifying for the kids. Oh my god! So I can only imagine if her, the mother in the story is collecting kids in sacks and carving out their stomachs. How bad the stories of the Yule lads had to be. I don't love this. I don't either. But it's not done because Gryla's Gryla's What did I say? I was going to say Gryla Gryla's family isn't complete without the Yule cat. Oh sure, <laughs> meow meow. Known as the Yolakuterin, or the Yule Cat of Iceland. It is the family pet of the Yule, I'm calling them the Yule Monster family. The Yolakuterin is said to be an absolutely massive black cat that appears at Christmas Eve when children are asleep. The nice little kitty looks underneath the Christmas tree in the house for new clothing, and if the feline monstrosity doesn't find any new clothing, it eats the kids. Oh my. <laughs> Very aggressive. But this apparently goes with Icelandic traditions in which children who completed their chores would get new clothing as a reward, which signaled to the Yule Cat who the lazy ones were. So basically, Dubby the Elf. Yes. <laughs> he gets a sock. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> but for our last festive freak, we jump over to Wales and meet the Mary Lloyd. This creature consists of a decorated horse spirit. And this one's really fun, honestly. Oh, <laughs> they'll, they'll change up. At least the celebration of it is. So the Mary Lloyd means gray mare and is celebrated by getting a real horse skull, decorating it in ribbons and bells, and fitting it with glass bottle eyes. 
The lower jaw is fixed with a spring, which allows the head to snap open and close very menacingly and loudly. And this is where we got like those mounted fish that play music. (laughs) (laughs) That sing songs to you. Yeah. The head is then fixed on a pole, which is carried around by a person hiding underneath a long white cloth. The ceremony usually began at dusk and would last late into the night, with whoever was carrying the costume accompanied by an entourage of people who were usually men, and they danced and sang through the streets of the village. And all of these helpers of the Mary Lloyd were collectively known as Punch and Judy. (laughs) Judy. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know what the names mean for that. What? Yeah. <laughs> what, what Punch and Judy mean? Judy. Don't, I, I don't know. No. But I thought those hilarious names for the group of men. <laughs> <laughs> that is so great. So these groups would be known as wassailing parties, and their purpose was to go out and hunt. Hunt for what, you ask? Well, the horse would be led through the town by the leader of the group who began singing the songs. They would visit every house or pub in the village and sing songs in front of the doors. Most of the time, the doors would remain closed, but the family inside of the house would remain behind the doors listening to the songs. And after this came Ponko, which was a rhyming back-and-forth game between the Mary Lloyd and the homeowners. If the Marie loses, they are to leave without getting in the house. However... It is believed to be good luck in the, if the Mary Lloyd enters your home. So most of the time, the party would sing a song, a last verse, if you will, begging to be enter- to allowed entrance into the home. Oh. And then once inside, the Mary Lloyd and its party, well, the Mary Lloyd specifically, would snap at and chase the children around the house, while the leader of the party would faint at trying to stop him. (laughs) 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 And the parents would just be loving it. Yeah. It's like, finally, I don't have to chase these rugrats. Yeah, right. Exactly. The party would then get food and drinks before leaving with a traditional farewell song. These are honestly so fun. It is. Like that is so fun. That one is my like one of the my favorites. Just because you get a you get assailed by this stranger. This skull <laughs> the skull horse creature with men named Punch and Judy. Yeah. And they have to rhyme back and forth at you. And if you lose, you have to let them into your house and give them food and drinks. Oh, well, I didn't really prepare anything. Rhyme, sir. <laughs> yeah, so <laughs> Rhyme so for your children. That is very funny, but Yes, that that concludes our coverage of Christmas traditions and Christmas creatures. There are plenty more out there. You can go research more for yourself if you would like to. But yeah, we picked we picked some of the f- ones we found most fun. Yes, I'm sure we'll do one of these maybe next year around Christmas time as well. So there's a, we have plenty of time to catch up. <laughs> yeah, there's a lot of different stuff around the holiday of Christmas that mm. goes into detail on how we got to where we are today so right right but yeah definitely uh hope you guys like this episode i know i absolutely love it I mean, let us just... know if you want to celebrate saturnalia with us next year that would be a lot of fun get a little saturnalia saturnalia get together and maybe we could do a live show a live saturnalia, For saturnalia show. that'd yeah. be fun yeah but if you want to continue the conversations, please feel free to reach out to us on our social medias. On Twitter, we're at gems underscore history. And then I am at whatevskis. Jacob is at Jacob from Wisco. And then on Instagram, YouTube, and TikTok, you can find us at Gems of History Podcast. And I've ne- I haven't plugged this in a while, but you can email us too. Oh, yeah. We do have an email that I haven't plugged in probably like 
40 episodes. Right. But uh, it is gemsofhistorypodcast at gmail.com if you want to get in touch with us that way as well. And so. also on Facebook, we are we have a Facebook group called The Agora. Yes. So there's plenty of places that you can reach out and find us. We are so dang reachable. Yes. But we all we hope that all of you listening had a happy holiday, a Merry Christmas, a Happy Hanukkah, as I mentioned, whatever you guys celebrate, because this is a very fun and festive time of the year. Although I do know that a lot of people get very stressed mm-hmm. and there's a lot going on during this time of year as well. So if you are stressed out and you are having a rough go of it, just know that we are here for you, and hopefully we provided you a little reprieve from everything going on so that you can relax and unwind for this hour or so, and you can have a little fun with us. So, we love all of you that listen. Thank you again for another great year of the podcast. We can't wait to come back next year with you guys because we will be taking a week off, and then we will be hitting you guys in 2023. So, a preemptive Happy New Year to all of you out there. Make sure you are safe in your celebrations, but have a good time. And look out for one another if you go out to the bars and stuff like that. Keep an eye on each other because there's a lot going on, and there's a lot of people out there that will take advantage of that. Yes. Just be safe and have fun. All of you out there, make sure that you stay polished going into the next year. And we love all of you.